welcome to episode 52 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years experience in Brazil and China. This episode, I'll skip the long preamble since this is kind of a long interview. It's long because it's a fun one, and I couldn't bear to cut out big chunks of it. Patrick St. Michel, a freelancer based in Tokyo, will take us behind the scenes of the Japanese music scene and on a broad tour of Japanese pop culture. Yes, we'll discuss the genre of journalism we'll just refer to as Weird Japan Stories. We'll also talk about Japanese convenience store food and Japanese baseball. Patrick has been in Japan for more than a decade, so there's a lot to tell. And of course, Patrick was my classmate at Northwestern University, so we'll talk a bit more about that too. Just one quick show note, he talks about a Korean musician named CL and how she failed to break through into the Western or U.S. music market. I didn't realize it, but she's the very same Korean musician in episode one of season two of the TV show Dave, about a wannabe rapper. Fun fact. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Patrick St. Michelle, a freelance music and pop culture journalist based in Tokyo, Japan. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Patrick. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. I usually like to start by asking if you could set the scene a little bit for us. Tell us where you are geographically, uh, the physical space around you, if you're in your apartment or where, and a little bit about what your past week of work has been like. Sure thing. So yeah, I am based in Tokyo, Japan on the west side of the city. I've been here for, what is it, like six or seven years now, after living in the Osaka area for a few years prior to that. I'm actually not in my own apartment right now. I have a, an almost two-year-old child who goes to sleep around this time. So I was able to convince, I guess maybe this is a good tie-in, I convinced one of my editors at the <laughs> Japan Times, a publication I contribute to, to let me use a spare room they have in their apartment. So I can talk as loudly as I want without waking up any children, at least not my own children. (laughs) And uh, what's your past uh, week been like in terms of work? The past week has been pretty busy. Besides writing for primarily the Japan Times and a few other publications, I also do assorted other, like, freelance work, and I'm currently kind of juggling a few bigger projects in the realms outside of writing. So it's been kind of like trying to balance that with, for whatever reason, lots of people now want to have meetings, and maybe that's just (laughs) because in Japan, more people can can get vaccinated now. So I think people, even if they're not officially vaccinated yet, they're kind of like, okay, it's close enough. Like we can, we can have a meeting at a family restaurant and it's all good. So it's been like balancing meetings with usual deadlines with these special projects. And then there's also the looming specter of the Olympics. Oh yeah. Which are coming up in what? Less, less than a month now. And trying to figure out like what my role covering that is for the Japan Times and anyone else who would want coverage, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) See, it's a lot of like thinking as well and meeting deadlines. Sure. 
So that, that's all very cool. Do you consider yourself, uh, if you Google Patrick St. Michelle, you mostly come up with music stuff. Do you consider yourself a music journalist? Or are you more a oh, jack of all trades? Or how do you define what you do? I would say music is definitely the primary field I cover. Japanese music in particular. There's a few other corners of the music market tucked in there as well. I would say, I guess beyond that, I do a fair amount of air quotes pop culture coverage, which kind of includes, you know, every once in a while I've written about like Netflix shows. I've done a few things about like stage performances. Um, it hmm. does kind of go all over the place. And then I also, um, for the Japan Times, do, with a few other writers, a column called, it's called Pulse, which looks at kind of internet culture. Mm-hmm. which usually like crosses over with the pop culture side of things. So it's looking at that as well. And then for the most of the past decade, I also had a column in the Japan Times devoted to convenience store food in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> like every week I would eat something new that was available in a convenience store and like just do a little quick like I don't know 70 word review of it so it's like waxing poetic about lemon flavored Kit Kat or something and it was great recently it uh concluded its run but for a long time it was a great justification for my bad eating habits out here in Japan (laughs) yeah no that sounds great I mean I've only been to Japan once and ate it convenience stores fairly frequently usually breakfast oh that's good did you end up getting a favorite convenience store like did you gravitate towards one over the others uh i think it was 7-eleven just from all right sheer recognizability the old the old workhorse of the industry good choice right yeah so then we usually like to figure out how our guests got to where they are today so how you got to be this music culture journalist in Japan. So we start way back at the beginning. If you could tell us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if there was anything early on that planted the seeds of interest in journalism. I grew up just north of Los Angeles. It's in an area called the Antelope Valley. It's not well-known for anything, really. (laughs) I grew up in a little town called Acton that, I don't know if this is verifiable, but I think there were more horses than people (laughs) in the city. Um, And it is kind of well-known because it was a place where Hollywood would film sort of like desert footage or like Uh. ruined space planet or like um the big thing when i was in elementary school was the the did you ever see the flintstones live action movie yeah for sure well that was like a year-long production in our town and it was like the big it was like the biggest thing that ever happened to acton (laughs) it was like uh, just 12 months celebration because like john goodman was sometimes within our, like, zip code. (laughs) So that's where I grew up. (laughs) And in terms of, like, writing and journalism, I do have kind of a family connection. My mom was a freelance writer. She became a freelance writer shortly after I was born. Uh, She had been doing sort of business work before that, but she decided just to take care of, like, me and eventually my brother, who's a few years younger than me. She kind of pivoted to freelance writing. 
And she would do a variety of things for, like, women's lifestyle interest magazines, like Good Housekeeping, and also, like, humor writing for, like, the Los Angeles Times every once in a while. And um, she told me from a very early age, don't become a freelance writer. (laughs) But that message did not stick somehow. So I was kind of always surrounded by it. So it was something I was always aware of. And yeah, I just was able to grow up reading a lot of things. You know, my mom in particular is very good about putting like newspapers in front of me and being like, oh, you should look at this thing. And initially... You know, I ended up a pop culture music writer, but initially what made me kind of want to take it more seriously was I was really into sports growing up, and I really wanted to be a sports writer. Like, and, you know, I would just, like, watch, like, in high school, on the days you'd get out of school early, I'd, like, just go home and watch ESPN like a zombie, and just see stuff like, <laughs> pardon the interruption, and be like, oh, look, these people are journalists, but they're also yelling at each other about sports. This looks fun. So that was kind of the thing that inspired me, I guess, to take it more seriously, or at least, you know, uh, base an educational choice on it. Sure, sure. Yeah, and then I think, <laughs> I don't know how much how much you get involved with this, but this is when our paths cross. <laughs> Right, yeah, so that was enough to make you apply to journalism school, I take it? Yes, that was kind of the... I guess at first, I actually also did the summer of my junior year in high school, Northwestern University, where we ended up going. They do like a summer program that's... They like look at different disciplines. There's like an acting one. I... I'm blanking on what the other ones are, but they also have a journalism, basically summer camp. Right. So, yeah, it's called... Um, was it called Cherubs or did they just... It was Cherubs. <laughs> it had another name and I am actually stunned that I'm forgetting it, but it was Cherubs. We were just, that was the... Because Cherubs wasn't official name, right? It seemed kind of like a joke. No, no. It had some kind of... It's like a charming uh, mascot kind of situation. But it did have something like, uh, I feel like there was a national and maybe a high school in there. Like, it had a much more official sounding name. Mm -hmm. But, you know, cherubs forever. That's the key. (laughs) And I did that for a summer. That was the first time I ever left. I really left California. So it was the first time going somewhere different, which was exciting, like, enough to make me want to get out of my small... Well, there's a lot of reasons to get out of small town, California. But I really enjoyed that experience. I think a lot of it was just being exposed to a new environment and just, you know, before that, I'd never, like, taken a class about writing or journalism outside of whatever the English class at junior high school or high school offered. So having, like, this rush of new information to process was really exciting and I was kind of like I want to go to Northwestern so I applied there got in and yeah that's I spent four years majoring in journalism at uh, Medill and we were in the same dorm together good old CRC (laughs) right right yeah for two years yeah two years Um, I I wasn't a journalism major but kind of you guys all rubbed off on me. Well, right. Um, you were in the... It was, it, was, it was a really big, like, 
lot of a lot of journalists were in that dorm. It's funny yeah. to like think back on. But look, you came around. Now you're interviewing. Now you're interviewing us. So <laughs> we're <done. laughs> Yeah, pretty soon uh, I'll probably have gotten gotten most people. But yeah, this is where we cross paths and yeah, I remember you were Tom uh, Duradikanan's, is that how you say his name's, uh, roommate? Yeah, Tom Duradikanan. Yeah, yeah, we were roommates the second year, and that was a whole, like... So the first year, um, I was... <laughs> Here's the part where we named the people we went to school with. Um, I was a <laughs> Spencer Cornhaber's roommate. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and what unites all of this, like, is all three of us, the people you've mentioned, we were all on Cherubs together. So I had known everyone before. Uh, and yes, yeah, Spencer's now at The Atlantic also yes. sometimes writing about music, but kind of a lot of different cultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a lot of, yeah, just a lot of pop cultural stuff. Um, so yeah, but and yeah, Tom was definitely somebody I was very close with from, I guess, high school onward. And yeah, I bring that up just because you guys then started North by Northwestern uh, when we were sophomores, or was it when we were freshmen, or how did that it all happen? It was, because I do remember, I guess first off, I, I always feel important to stress that like Tom was like 80% of the reason it existed, like, whereas I think, I'll argue, I helped think of the name. <laughs> And like the general idea, but like Tom. <laughs> and yeah, could you just say a few words about what it was for people? Of who aren't course, familiar? very good point. Um, so yeah, uh, North by Northwestern was an online student sort of magazine and a news outlet that Tom and I first started like kind of thinking of in the summer between freshman and sophomore year. Tom actually came down to Acton, where I live, the middle of nowhere, and, like, we went to Comic-Con in San Diego together. <laughs> so this is the genesis. This is, this is where it all comes from. And that's kind of where we started kind of just throwing more ideas around. I probably the the most I'm willing to really puff my chest out on this is like I think I'm, I'm good at listening to people and helping like brainstorm things, mm-hmm. and then it's up to other people to get it done. <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of when it started. We just jumped into it with mostly other people in CRC, the aforementioned dorm that we were living in, the start of the fall sophomore year. And yeah, I kind of just, we kind of just stuck with it for the next three years. I mean, Tom and I in particular, because we also would end up, we ended up sharing a house with a few other people in the years after. And like, I was the only person who had a car. So I ended up also kind of like being a sort of like late night taxi service, kind of like, (laughs) and I was happy to do it. It was really fun. And I guess just to, I don't know, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but like that experience in particular was really like fun. And I really enjoyed every aspect of that and what it meant for writing and journalism. Um, So yeah, there was a lot of times I was in the the Medill building to like five in the morning with Tom and a few other people, like just doing whatever. And I do think by the end of it, Tom and I were losing our minds a little bit, (laughs) especially, I mean, and Tom in particular was putting in like, like, he's incredible. Uh, great guy. He's in the New York Times now. Like, in the last year, we ended up just, like, 
we bought a deep fryer from Target, <laughs> and we just started, like, deep frying things late at night, just to, like, I think, probably to entertain ourselves, but to also feed the people working at North by Northwestern. Looking back on it, it's like, what were we thinking? And I do think we got chided, because we would use, like, the break room in Medill, <laughs> and it, like, ended up smelling like a, like, you know, like a late night convenience store, really. And, yeah, I, I think the people in charge of the school were mortified, but uh, made some great food. <laughs> and, yeah, North by Northwestern was, like, the, on the Internet, yeah, like, eh, I want to say modeled after almost, like, Slate or something like that. Yeah, that definitely was. I, I mean, it was definitely Slate and Salon, I think, were the big things at the time that were kind of like, oh, what if we had a thing like that? And... Yeah, I guess the main thing was, I guess maybe just for me personally, looking back on it, I came to Medill at a really weird time in the school's history, because I remember the first year I was there, I really don't feel like they were treating the internet seriously. Right. I remember being very frustrated that, because I was somebody who, especially in the years up to that, like, at that point... I was really somebody who enjoyed internet media. Like, I was somebody who did, like, check stuff like Slate uh, or even Salon, like, every day. And I guess to tie to where I eventually ended up, like, I read a music site like Pitchfork became something I checked every day to the point Mm -hmm. of, of weird obsessiveness in high school. And, like, that to me was kind of really exciting, this idea of, oh, online media is it the future but when i first started at medell they weren't really seeing that as the years went on it changed and i actually think now based on what i've heard it's much better but i was in this really weird gray zone and i think tom maybe felt the same way so it was kind of like we want something that's more where we think media is going or at least the media we enjoy consuming so we made north by northwestern to kind of experiment with it Sure. When did you shed the sports interest out of curiosity? (laughs) It was. Because, yeah, I did do a lot of, like, kind of sports writing for North by Northwestern. And it was something I kind of kept with until, I think it was my senior year of college. Something that Medill does, that's great, is every student there, they do a... It's kind of like an internship at a major publication. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, I was still focused on sports. I wanted to go somewhere with a good sports section. So I ended up at the South Florida Sun Sentinel for a quarter. Mm -hmm. And it was just during that time, like, I realized this isn't my thing. Like, and it's weird to look back on because I had lots of great opportunities like, I would have the chance to go to, uh, like, the Miami Dolphins. I could go to their practices and even one of their games at one point and, you know, just mm-hmm. do, like, really quick video stuff for the paper. They were kind of experimenting with video at the time. It was 2008, I think. And I would, like, go to um, the Miami Heat arena and Dwayne Wade, I could ask Dwayne Wade a single question, which was like, whoa, what's happening here? <laughs> But I realized doing it that for whatever reason, it just wasn't, 
what I thought it was. I thought I think the grind of it, like I think it takes real skill to be that kind of like beat reporter who's in the locker room every day, kind of interacting with the players and all that. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of realized I couldn't really hang in that world, and I didn't want to. I was kind of like. I think I'm a fan of sports. I don't think I really want to cover it like this. But just during that three months, I realized, like, I mean, and I also didn't feel motivated to, this is my fault, I didn't feel motivated to get any, like, stories. (laughs) Um, So I was just like, oh, that's a bad sign. But meanwhile, at the same time, I was still writing, like, music and pop culture like cd reviews and stuff for north by northwestern Mm -hmm. and like i kind of like i didn't immediately like realize oh it was flip-flopped all along it was more of just like i realized that's what i had more fun doing so i kind of just put more energy into that and yeah just kind of in the months after i kind of yeah i just moved on from sports writing i guess another another like little loose end there um i kind of mentioned earlier how i would watch espn and that would be kind of a motivating thing mm-hmm. uh, i remember i forget when it might have been the winter after that internship the famous northwestern alumni michael wilbon who's one of the hosts of pardon the interruption very famous sports writer he came to the school to do a kind of q a And I went, and he was just so dismissive of, like, online media and blogs and just, like, the internet in general. It was real, like, old man yells at cloud stuff. (laughs) And, like, I was just turned me off so much. It was like watching this person who I was kind of like, oh, wow, this guy seems great. Like, and he's a good reporter, whatever. But it was seeing that and being like, oh, I just don't mesh with this worldview anymore. And, like... I'm sure that obviously lots of people also didn't mesh with that. Plenty of great online sports media exists now. But that was another moment where I was just like, okay, I don't think this is for me. Sure, sure. And I was talking to someone else who I'm blanking on for the podcast, and uh, we were talking about North by Northwestern, and we weren't sure if it still existed anymore. Do you know if it does? I think it does i don't follow it closely but i do get every once in a while emails about it because yeah, i guess there's a like an uh, alumni database and yeah it seems to still be doing things that's pretty incredible cool okay uh is there anything else you want to talk about from northwestern before we move on to what whatever comes next well i guess i mean if, if we're looking for a nice segue into what comes next um sure to stick with kind of that experience in Florida and like kind of realizing this thing that I thought was what I wanted to focus on wasn't that thing. When I was in Florida, I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life post-college anymore. I think before then I had a very, you know, a nice vague idea of like uh, graduate newspaper question mark, website question mark. But during all of that time in Florida, I really just felt like, did I just waste four years of my life like studying this thing <laughs> I maybe don't want to do anymore? So I honestly don't know how I found it. But at the same time, uh, I found this exchange program, or maybe it's best just described as like a, a cultural enrichment program. It's called the JET program. 
It's a Japanese government initiative where they get college graduates from English-speaking countries. They take them, drop them off throughout the country, and they just, like, teach English to elementary school up to high school students for... It's, like, on a yearly contract system. And I guess sort of, like, you know, I came from a really small town, and, like, even going to Chicago was like, whoa, what's this? Is this another planet? (laughs) Like, and I'd also had the chance to, like, spend a little time in England the summer before that on a little, like, because I was a really bad student at Northwestern, so I needed to do, like, extra classes to graduate. So I did, Mm -hmm. like, a summer study abroad program. But it was great, and I was kind of like, oh, there's so much of the world to see. That kind of attitude. So I decided to apply for the JET program while I was still in Florida, and it was kind of just like, all right, this is one path I can take. And then I'll be in Japan for a year. I'll just think about what to do, come back to America. We'll take it from there. So yeah, I kind of made it past the first round, got to an interview. I had to do that in Chicago in the middle of the winter. It was a really snowy day. I remember I got to downtown and realized I wasn't wearing a belt and was just like, oh no, I just blew it because I look like an idiot. <laughs> so I had to go to, I think, a gap that had just opened and be like, give me a belt. And like, I bought a belt on the spot for it. <laughs> yeah. And then just apparently the belt worked because they accepted me. And yeah, I, that was kind of what came next. And it was really, it, it wasn't something I'd ever thought about doing. It came about very quickly, kind of just in this vague career dread that popped up and yeah i mean it is a well-known program i remember looking at it myself when i was kind of unsure what to do unable (laughs) to get a job when i graduated Um, classic path all of us (laughs) (laughs) where where, so where did they send you yeah so i was sent to mie prefecture which is a very i'm trying to what it's even famous for it's located between nagoya and osaka so it kind of straddles the line between being in the kansai region and the chubu region of japan kind of like right in the middle i was put in a city called nabari which is located on the west side it was about eighty thousand people and its claim to fame was it was home to the biggest salamander center in Japan. (laughs) So, like, they had, like, 20 different types of salamanders in a room, and you could see them all. And they were pretty impressive salamanders, to be fair. It's a pretty, like, it's best described as basically a suburb or a commuter town for Osaka. So people would sort of like, they put their families in this little city. They would take the train every day to go to the actual big city for work. It's like an hour and a half train ride, so it's not too bad. And then, yeah, it's like in Japan, they call it a bed town because it's just literally where you sleep. So I was there for two years teaching junior high school students (laughs) and the occasional elementary school class. And, I mean, how did you find it? Did you find it isolating? Did you find it? Were you immediately hooked? Or did you start learning Japanese right away? How, how, how did you take to it? I was lucky that 
uh, Nabari, uh, this city, had a very good community of Jets, of English teachers who were on the same program, which wasn't always the case. I knew people who were in much smaller towns, like up in the mountains, like you have to take a train just to get to like, like a city like mine that is kind of boring. So like, and they were all by themselves. That was isolating. I had like six other teachers who were on the program that we would see regularly and who became very close friends mm-hmm. um, from just like all around the world. Um, just other people from America. One other teacher, uh, a very close friend whose emails I need to respond to from South Africa, people from Ireland. So there was a good community there. And I think that really helped. And in general, the city itself was fine, kind of boring. And I guess we'll touch on that later, actually. But it was close enough to Osaka, Nagoya, and also Kyoto, where it was easy on the weekends to, like, get out and kind of go somewhere more fun for a person in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Japanese. Um, so yeah, I had never studied Japanese before coming. Did not plan that one out at all. I think I did some real, like, rushed, like, crash course learning a month before. But yeah, that was that wasn't held with hello and so forth. When I got there, they did have a like a nice local community class that was run by like kind of a retired woman. I guess took pity on us and for like the equivalent of a dollar a week <laughs> she would she would teach us the very basics of Japanese so I did that but I was very like carrying over from the other education uh, I was really bad at studying it like yeah it took a long time I didn't really get serious about Japanese so I moved to Tokyo and realized oh I'd probably actually be here longer than I expected <laughs> <laughs> And so yeah, two years, and then then what happens after your two years? Mm. So as touched on, like yeah, I was I was a teacher for two years. It was it was fine. It's it's a good experience, uh, especially I guess I got lucky. My schools were generally pretty good. The kids were generally interested in whatever game or vague cultural lesson I had to teach them, and they were all very nice and curious about learning about what an American is like. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was fun. But at the same time, as mentioned, this is a very kind of unexciting city. It's mostly a suburb. You know, there's like a few chain restaurants you can go to, like convenience stores. They're great. That's where I developed my love for those, just because that was the only place you could go. Mm -hmm. So what I did do, carrying over from my interest in music writing, which I had been never taking too seriously. Like, before that, I decided to start a blog just as a way to basically entertain myself while living in this this countryside town. And it was kind of just a way for me to kind of be like, okay, I'm going to try to, like, listen to interesting Japanese music, kind of just kind of keep my ears open and see what's out there and just, like, write about it for anyone who's curious. And that's really what I put my focus, my free time focus on. Instead of studying, it was kind of like 
after school, I would go home. I would like turn on the the national broadcaster NHK. They would run like children's shows. Like <laughs> after school, I was like, oh, this is kind of at a level I can get right now. And then I would just kind of like at the time go through MySpace or just other websites, just trying to learn about music. <laughs> or in mm-hmm. free time, I'd go to like CD stores and kind of just like rummage through things. That was a big thing. Going to Osaka is they have. Uh, Tower Records still, a very famous physical music retailer that does not exist in the States anymore. But, like, here, you can find them in every major city. And, like, I would just go there and look through things. I would go to live shows randomly. And, yeah, that I kind of just kept doing that. It was the thing that... It was just that fun spirit that I had always, like, enjoyed about writing, especially about music and pop culture. So I did that for the entire two years, and it turns out, I mean, yeah, that was a niche. There was nobody else doing that. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, people did start reading it. Not, like, any huge amount of people. Make Believe Melodies. Check it out, everyone. The archive is still up there. Make Believe Melodies? Yeah. Right. And I was just doing that for fun. Yeah, just going wild in my downtime. And <laughs> eventually, yeah, people found it people interested in Japanese music and that eventually did lead to a connection where the music editor at the time at the Japan times, which is Japan's biggest daily English language newspaper. He was kind of like introduced to what I was doing. He reached out to me and he said like, Oh, if you ever want to try writing for us, you should try pitching ideas. You should try things, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Fun fact, that's the editor who's, when this is how long ago was this this was 2011 this was early in the year i think i want to say february okay because then i started like i wrote a few small articles for them in march or maybe february it's spring and like that was kind of like these opportunities started coming which was unexpected And that was at the same time I had to decide whether I would renew my contract for a third year or, in theory, go back to the United States. And heading into that year, my second full year, I was kind of like, okay, this is the last one. There's not, like, any, like, career advancement. I'm kind of just like, you know, it's been a fun time, but I'm not going to be a teacher. I'm not a good teacher. Like, I'm a good, like, (laughs) entertainer of bored students. So, yeah, so this comes around as like, well, this is interesting. Like, should I try staying in Japan longer and just trying to write more? And I mean, uh, funny enough, my mom, who had always like urged me not to be a freelance writer, she's kind (laughs) of like, it seems like there's a lot of interesting opportunities. Maybe you should try staying a little more, which was incredible. I know she like misses me so much, (laughs) but she was very like supportive of what she was seeing. So I, yeah, like I decided to stay longer in Japan, just not with this program. I decided I should probably go somewhere else. Eventually I realized I should probably be in Osaka to just like experience living in a city. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, just from there, it was, I was able to keep writing things for the Japan Times. Um, I was started every once in a while going to Tokyo to meet my editor, to meet other writers, just people in the Japanese music industry, and also interview artists there, and sort of just do features that kind of slowly started building something, while still blogging at the same time. Um, eventually ended up in Osaka after a very complicated job hunt because I still needed a visa. Mm. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't at the level I could get the the coveted freelance visa. Um, so I had to become, I still had to stay a teacher for a private company. And I ended up in Osaka. I lived between two warehouses. So every morning at like 5 a.m. there'd be like a dozen trucks just honking and moving boxes <laughs> and stuff. So that was an intense six months. But I kept writing and just kept kind of like building a online presence. I don't think I'm very good at quote unquote branding, but <laughs> like I guess there's there were so few people on like the internet writing about Japanese music at this time. I was able to, yeah, just kind of make connections. I also got lucky. This is also where I guess some slights, you know, this is where the benefit of Northwestern comes in. Spencer, yeah, he started working at the Atlantic, Spencer Cornhaber, And like, he was able to help me like land stories there. He was kind of like, oh, pitch this person or oh, pitch me. So I was able to write a few things for the Atlantic early on, which in retrospect was like way ahead of where I should have. <laughs> but it was cool and they were good. They were good experiences. So just from there, it was just kind of like, oh, this is interesting. Like, maybe I should stick with it. And the ultimate kind of, like, landing point was after six months in Osaka, and this all comes full circle. The the listener can't see this room, but this room literally um, opened up. Like, my editor's roommate was, like, transferred to London for their job. So it was kind of like, uh, do you want to live here? (laughs) (laughs) so i was just like ah this is like perfect timing okay so then i just moved to tokyo um i am actually recording in the room i lived in for like three or four years which is weird wow yeah this is a real real special moment podcast listeners (laughs) but yeah that's i ended up in tokyo and yeah i've been here ever since like the friend i haven't gone far i literally took a bus 10 minutes to get here so like i this this like five mile stretch has been where i've lived for the past eight years or something that's great that's great that's funny that you used to live in that room i live in this room the lighting they changed the lighting though it's it's much different now Um, so how did you then, once you moved to Tokyo, you, you got on a freelance visa or did you continue to teach to maintain your like legal status? Exactly. I went that route. I continued teaching. So every day I would wake up, I was still a junior high school teacher with the same private company. I went to what was in theory, a very fancy junior high school in the middle of the city, but it actually, um, some of the kids were great had some of the, like, the worst behaved students I've ever encountered in any school <laughs> setting. I mean, they were just really, like, disorderly, and not just for English, for every class. Like, I remember once, at kind of the breaking point, actually, like, we were just trying to do, like, a lesson about, like, this is a pencil. This is a pencil. And, like, 
I guess one kid kind of snapped because he had been so somebody else was making fun of him. He just stood up in the middle of the class, took a pair of scissors, and like threw them at this kid that was making fun of him. And a fight broke out in the middle of the classroom. I was like, I can't do anything. I just stand there awkwardly, being like, ugh. <laughs> um, that was a moment I realized I don't think I'm built out for this. And I got lucky just through my personal existence. I was able to meet my wife at around the same time. My eventual wife, I guess, at this point. And yeah, I got married mm-hmm. in 2015-ish. I don't think she'll listen to this, so I'm safe. <laughs> and because of that, I was able to get the spousal visa, which was kind of like a cheat code. Sure. Because I think initially I was doing freelancing for the Japan Times and other publications while teaching, but I'm not sure I would have been at that level yet. And I think it's also frowned. You can't like, you can't be a teacher and also do that. So I might have been like tight roping a few things. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I was able to get that visa, and that was kind of the safety net that allowed me to kind of like give freelance writing a full go. In, yeah, 2015, 2016. And, yeah, that's where I've been ever since. Just kind of like the constant freelance hustle. Sure. I guess, are, are there any other highlights of your time as a freelancer? I'm trying to think. The other major things, like... It's been interesting to see how sort of just the image of Japan, especially its pop culture, kind of fluctuates over the past decade. So that's been something just kind of like, maybe we'll get into this, but like early on when I started, and this is kind of what surprised me, I was surprised how eager publications outside of Japan were to like run stories about Japanese entertainment, even things that like nobody in, say, America listened to. (laughs) Whereas now I actually think it's much harder in general, even though I actually think way more people are interested in especially non-English music, but even like Japanese pop culture in general. So just kind of seeing these developments, there's a lot of differences between being a journalist or writer of any type than what I think people in America might expect, like dealing with both Japanese companies and what's expected of Japanese reporters. And I think that always surprises people, especially with pop culture entertainment writing. It can be a really a real struggle to like work with the managers and companies behind these artists. Hmm. It's very common in Japanese journalism for like, not only do you submit interview questions before the interview, like, they get to check the story, they get to check everything, and they can, like, make the changes they want. To the point where some music publications, and just publications in general, like, it actually is kind of like a label, for example, will just buy space for coverage, and it becomes more of an ad. But it's presented as, like, a review or an interview or a feature, The Japan Times does not follow this model. So this has resulted in a decade of, like, butting heads with so many people. And it can be a real challenge. It's really like a roller coaster sometimes navigating it. But overall, it's overall positive. And I guess in terms of foreign publications looking for stories about Japan, Mm -hmm. 
I mean, there's such a thing as in any foreign country, like, but specifically with Japan, <laughs> like it was the weird China story, or in this case, yeah. the weird Japan story. And like, what do you think about those types of mm-hmm. stories? And is it an unfair stereotype? Or is there some truth somewhere in there? Uh, weird Japan, uh, weird Japan, surely the, the trailblazing weird concept. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, because like, because yeah, I can remember, like, just growing up, like, I remember just so many weird Japan stories, or even just like, yeah, just even like local news would have weird stories about Japan, which you're like, why are you even featuring this in retrospect? <laughs> I remember when I came to Japan, this was in 2010, so a year after I was there. It, oh, was it the... I forget which publication started it, so we'll just let that float in the air. Somebody wrote a quote-unquote trend article about the hot new fashion movement sweeping the country. They dubbed it Bagelheads. <laughs> anyone near a computer should Google this right away. Um, basically, the idea was Japanese teens and youth are... I forget what they're injecting into their forehead, maybe saline, and it kind of gives you a little bump in your forehead that vaguely looks like a bagel. So it's kind of like a weird body manipulation thing. This is disturbing. I just pulled it up on my phone. (laughs) So this was presented, and this is very common with the weird Japan trope, this was presented as like, Japan is doing this thing, but in reality, it was this really, 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 really tiny subsection of people, like, like truly a tiny amount of people. Sure. And like, yeah, it kind of just blew up into this thing, like, look what Japan's doing. That's just like the first example I remember experiencing well in Japan. In general, it's, and I guess for like what I try to do, I do always try to avoid that sort of exoticizing, weird Japan angle. I mean, in general, yeah, it just distorts what's happening in the country and distorts the actual interesting stuff that is widespread and worthy of attention, but not kind of, like, propping up that bizarre, like, get a load of this country mindset. So I've always tried to especially with entertainment writing, it's always making sure I'm trying to talk to somebody, an actual artist who could actually kind of talk about their experience or, you know, contextualize something that's happening. I mean, that's been something I go to a lot, especially when, like, there's a really buzzed Weird Japan meme. Like, if somebody finds a clip from a game show and they're like, look at this, this is crazy. And then you're just like, well, actually, let me... Let me ruin your fun by telling you what this actually is. But (laughs) I guess that does kind of tie into how I view Weird Japan. It is a really, like, it's a crutch. Though I do think there's a danger in kicking back too much in that you end up, because I do see this with some journalists who are very anti-Weird Japan, they end up, like, you know, anything that seems vaguely fun or offbeat they're instantly like oh that's that shouldn't be talked about that's just weird japan and it's like well no there are interesting things you just have to present it in the correct way so it's finding that balance you know not exoticizing a country and acting like the teens everywhere are shooting saline into their cheeks but also being like you know there are fun stories you can report it doesn't have to be all 
doom and gloom. Right, yeah. I mean, there's a way to report bagelheads and just make it clear how niche it is, how yeah, and small it's, it is. It's, it's funny that recently it's been more, like, I feel weird Japan has kind of weakened a little bit. It's more of a YouTube thing now. I think YouTubers go to the weird Japan well more than, like, media. Media, to me now, goes for more of, like, a charming, like, like uh, let's learn a lesson about life Japan. And most prominently was that New Yorker story about the rent-a-family which was like... Oh, I read that, yeah. Yeah, and that's a good example of what Weird Japan did wrong, too, which was like, you know, it focused on this real niche thing, and this niche thing ended up being kind of a scam. Like, it's not really a happening in this country. Like, Right, no one was doing it. Right. Like, it was... They were... It was like a rent a family type thing but it turned out they were actually married or something like that i don't know right right there was some sort of there was they were playing the writer and i think it was kind of that because i think in recent years this sort of it's almost whimsical japan or borderline like calm boring japan like people kind of want more relatable like ah the the boredom of every day but it's actually interesting stories and i feel that also kind of has problems and that story and sort of the fallout from it really illustrated it. Cool. Yeah. So that's the biographical part. Uh, that all went great. I think next we'll talk about some stories. There are really mm-hmm. only two questions in this section. I like to start with the story that got away. What is a story you wanted to do, but for whatever reason, couldn't pull it off either. You couldn't, you know, convince an editor to, mm-hmm. to commission the story the person wouldn't talk to you like something else fell apart does anything come to mind there's a lot right now that might uh <laughs> might constitute that in the <laughs> next coming months so let's check back in uh, at the end of the year there is one story that i do remember pursuing really heavily and which in retrospect could have been a real like like what is it sliding doors moment yeah because it would have actually maybe nudged me away from what i cover now which is japanese entertainment this was 2014 2015 around there Mm -hmm. so this is the point where korean pop music uh, k-pop is really really starting to gain momentum globally outside of asia i should say we had kangam style change the course of humanity and Korean music agencies, they hadn't had a real success story. Today they have BTS, obviously. That's the biggest like boy band in the world right now. Right. But at this point, they didn't have that. Everyone was still waiting for the quote-unquote crossover moment. And there was one artist who was kind of being pushed to be just that. It was a member of a K-pop group. Her name was CL. Uh, she was in a group called 21, spelled 2 N E letter one. Um, <laughs> and I had really liked their music. K pop was something that enjoyed a boom in Japan when the first summer I was there. It was kind of like enjoying this renaissance in the country. I wrote a lot of articles about it at the time, actually, for both the Atlantic and Japan Times. And it's something I'd always kind of like. You know, especially early on, I was kind of like, am I just going to write about Japanese music or should I write about other things too? Mm. 
And then, so this story came up. The CL was planned to debut in America. It was going to be this big concentrated push. She was working with big names like Diplo, Skrillex, just a bunch of really well-respected producers as well. And there was definitely like a media push for it. And I convinced Pitchfork, a site that by this point I contributed a few things to, uh, mostly reviews, but a handful of features as well. I convinced them that we should try to do a profile on her. And they were up for it. They were like, yeah, if you can do it, go for it. So this begins a year-long wild goose chase (laughs) where I reached out to... I had known a few people in the Korean entertainment industry. They connected me to the right people at her company, a famous K-pop powerhouse called YG Entertainment. And they were really, like, interested at first. They were kind of like, oh, that's, like, an interesting idea. And, like, it was kind of... I had the chance to go to Korea to meet these people and kind of spend, like, a week there just trying to, like, convince them that they should do this story. And then it was going back to Japan, emailing them, not hearing anything, also trying to email the American side, just juggling all of this. People are suddenly like, oh, we don't want to talk about it. Or the American side would do these, like, very uh, lawyer-like, yeah, we don't want to do this kind of brush-offs. The Korean side kind of just completely ignored me. at some point and yeah the story kind of just died and that's the one i think back on because i put so much effort into it like trying to make it happen and in my mind i was kind of like oh is this gonna be my this is so obnoxious this is a very 20 like mid-20s thinking i was like is this (laughs) gonna be my journalistic breakthrough like i'm gonna be the one who writes the story about the crossover artist And it didn't happen. And that, like, kind of... It made me stick with Japanese music more. And Japanese entertainment. And I actually think, in retrospect, that was probably a good thing. Just because there's now so many, like, talented people out there who cover Korean pop music or Korean culture. And just who have so much more knowledge of it. That field has just grown so much. Whereas, like, I realize... By focusing on what I do, it's like, oh, cool, I have this knowledge, which is really great and somehow still in demand. So, <laughs> um, But it is, I do think back on that sometimes as just like, yeah, I remember what I wanted that story to be. And I was just like, yeah, this is the big one. And just like, you just remember so many, like, ugh, so many phone calls, like, trying to convince them this will be good for you. Why why didn't why do you think they didn't go for it? I mean, why wouldn't it have been good for them? <laughs> I think they were just being really protective. I mean, and I think part of it, this ties back to what I mentioned with like how Japanese entertainment companies can be very like uh, controlling with the media. I think it's the same with a lot of Korean agencies. I've had other bad experiences with Korean agencies. Um, We can get into that later. But yeah, I think they just didn't think it would be a good match for them. Like, because this artist, CL, she did a lot of other like interviews with uh, English language publications, but one, they weren't that good. Two, yeah, I think they probably just were able to control it more, would be my guess. Um, Whereas this would be more of a wild card proposition for them. 
And the funny thing is, I think in retrospect, most people would say she probably should have done more things like this because her um, efforts to go abroad didn't really work. It was just really bad timing, bad use of media. Um, And I actually remember like a couple years ago, I tweeted about this because she was like announcing her hiatus or something. And like her fans, her stands, as they say, they found the tweet and they were just like, ah, oh, they should have done this. What were they doing? Like there was this weird moment of like, oh, justified at long last. The K-pop fans think, <laughs> think they should have said yes to the story too. Like this company doesn't know what they're doing. Oh, blah, blah, blah. It was a nice little ego boost. Yeah, no, and yeah, the fact that the evidence is that she wasn't the big crossover artist. So yeah, I think they should have been more. And I think the one that got away. Yeah, so that's definitely the one I think about the most. There aren't many stories I've done where, like, yeah, it's like I'm going to go to another country for this. Yeah, like to literally try to convince someone in a Starbucks to let me do this, like. Wild times. Yeah, that's a big investment in a story. Like It is. Okay, cool. And then, yeah, the next one is just a story that you're proud of, that you've done at any point in your career. It can be any medium. And just tell us a little bit about what the story was, how you got the idea, and kind of how you did it start to finish. Uh, the redemption arc. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the one I'm most proud of is in 2018, I was able to get an interview with a really well-known Japanese pop artist. Her name is Maria Takeuchi. Mm-hmm. She kind of really started in Japan. She became famous in the late 70s and in the 1980s. She's like just a really well-known performer. She was completely unknown outside of the country until, I want to say 2017, the YouTube algorithm started sort of recommending one of her songs to people on the platform. Uh, It's a song called Plastic Love. And it like became a massive viral hit on YouTube. And it spawned a bunch of memes. It spawned covers. It became this internet thing. It like... It's a very, like, um, like a pre-TikTok, like, out-of-nowhere surprise hit. And especially from Japanese music, that's quite rare. Especially something like this. Mm-hmm. And I thought early on when I had seen that it was becoming a thing on YouTube, I thought, oh, you know, an interview with her would be great. I mean, one, she's never done an English interview before. Two, this thing is bigger than a lot of, like... Japanese music that's even gotten attention outside of the country before. And it's just a really interesting story. So yeah, that kind of became like, okay, I'm going to focus on making this happen. And it took six months to convince her record label, uh, Warner Music Japan, to go for this. It helps Mm -hmm. that I, I knew like the person who's in charge of the label. I was, I had interviewed him before I had like a nice catch up coffee with him and I kind of just proposed this idea. I was like, you know, this song I'm sure you've seen, it's going like crazy viral. I was like, yeah, what's up with that? They were kind of surprised by it too, which is an important detail. (laughs) Um, And I was kind of just like proposing to them, like, you know, it'd be really cool to have the actual artist talk about it. And it took, yeah, 
from there six months talking with this guy, her manager, her PR people. Because, yeah, she's like a legit, you know, A-class celebrity in Japan. And it was just this lots of hoops, lots of hoops. But eventually they were like, yeah, let's do it. And, yeah, had a lovely three-hour interview with her. One of the, which is one of my favorite interviews ever. Just, like, the combination of just hearing her stories combined with, like, you know, teaching this superstar J-pop artist, like, because she was as equally curious about why it was doing well. And, like, she would ask things like, like, what's Vaporwave? Which is maybe a rabbit hole your listeners don't want to go down. But <laughs> what is Vaporwave? What is Vaporwave? It's slowed down music. Um, oh, kanji, okay. kanji symbols put over it. But, um, but it was, like, also this weird thing of explaining internet trends and this weird, like, shared discovery. And, yeah, the story itself kind of became more than just that. I, talk, I tried to talk to people who worked with her in the past, tried to talk to someone from YouTube trying to figure out how their algorithm works, though that's, like, the biggest secret in the world, and they would not offer any hints beyond, like, people like it. Um, it's fair. <laughs> um, it just, it was a big story. I'm very proud of how it turned out, and it also has, it's the only time anyone's ever interviewed her about this. I think even in Japanese media. So, like, it's it's nice to still see it actually be referenced as like when people talk about this or there's kind of a interest in online communities and older Japanese music that's been a thing over the last few years and this story is kind of uh, I, I oh don't seek it out but I see that like it's brought up as like oh look this is a really good in-depth look at how she thinks about it and that ties to sort of something I touched on earlier which is I'm also happy that like so many people were just like, what's this meme? It's crazy. Like, and in reality, it's like, well, no, there's a whole story behind it. And here it is. So it's being able to just tell the story of this song, this artist, and just show that it's not just a weird internet thing. It's not just a weird Japan thing. Uh, so yeah, that's the one I'm most proud of. It's also the, one of the only stories that's like impresses sort of the older Japanese people I know in my life. Like, um, <laughs> like a, a, my Japanese teacher, I would see a Japanese teacher every week and like, you know, I'd tell her, oh, I'm doing a story about X and she'd be like, oh, that's cool. But like, I told her this, like, I, oh, I'm talking to Maria Takeuchi and she like flipped out <laughs> or even like my mother-in-law, like that's something that impresses her. <laughs> so wow, like, yeah, yeah. Or even I, this is, I guess this is the part where I'm most proud of, so it's okay. But it's like, I remember when it came out, there were people at the Japan Times office, like older um, Japanese staff. They had actually taken the very nicely designed uh, feature and they like pasted it on their cubicle because <laughs> they were just like so happy she was in the Japan Times. It's really, seeing that was really weird, but in a good way. Like, so yeah, that's the story, both because it was something that took a long time to come together, but also just, just came together so nicely in the end. I'm still very proud of that one. That's great. That's great. Yeah, some some real uh, Japanese street cred with the older generation. <laughs> that's true. The older generation. I'm a hero. 
Cool. Well, the, those are two uh, good examples for both of those questions. So next up is the lightning round, where I'll ask a series of faster-paced questions. You can answer at whatever length you like, though. It's just, you know, obviously it's been kind of more the narrative of your life, and now it'll be more broken up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now just throw it all against the wall. I can do that. <laughs> do you feel ready? I am ready to go. First up is what is a must-read publication that you look at a lot for covering the main thing you cover? So if you're a music journalist in Japan, what do you look at when you want to keep up on what's going on in music? I mean, for specifically in Japan, there's just so many Japanese websites and that is an important thing I guess I do do to go back to the language aspect. You know, I'm not the most competent speaker, but I can read pretty decently. And I do keep up with, there's a lot of news websites here. Um, I'll just name a few real fast for anyone sure. who wants to learn about Japanese music. You've got Natalie. You've got Sinra, C-I-N-R-A. You've got more indie stuff like um, Indie Grab. You've got... I mean, there's Billboard Japan, which does a very good job. And you've got just a plethora of Twitter accounts that do a great job of sort of showing what's happening in every corner of the country's music. So something I do, like, follow very closely is just what Japanese publications are talking about. And one benefit of, I mean, just the Japanese publishing industry is, like, despite not it's seeing like sales go down like anywhere else in the industry, but like there's still a really strong physical component. Like magazines are still huge here and they even have Mm -hmm. these things called MOOCs that are like magazine books. MOOC. Um, (laughs) Those are so fascinating because it allows people to just zoom in on niche topics. They can make an entire MOOC about an artist and their like discography from the big, huge popular albums to these like obscure EPs and stuff. I try to buy copies of stuff like Music Magazine. Uh, what are the other big ones? Music Magazine, it actually probably is. It's a very generic title for a music publication. But like I do try to buy that as often as possible because they just do so much great, like not only looking at contemporary music, but just deep dives into Japanese music that are is like as a constant education thing is great. Cool. And then what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun that isn't related to your job, but vaguely journalistic in nature? Um, I mean, I do listen to, and I don't know why this started. I've started listening to a lot of like food podcasts. Yeah, and it's totally un, like completely unrelated to journalism or anything. I maybe this is just how I approach podcasts. I like burned out on the more narrative stuff maybe like a couple years ago. I also tried to help make one for the Japan Times, which which was good. It was a good experience, and I think it came together very well. It was a look back on uh, the pop culture of 2020 amidst the pandemic. Uh, recultured, check it out. Recultured. Recultured. Gotcha. And I think even honestly, after that experience, because it was the first time I'd worked on a podcast in any capacity, it was just so 
I mean, yeah, I should have known, but it was like so time consuming to make something good. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I don't want to listen to anything smart ever again. <laughs> so like most recently I've been binging. It's a podcast called Doughboys. It's a two comedians in America who review chain restaurants. So like they'll go to Arby's and talk about it. <laughs> and it's they maybe take it more seriously than you'd expect, but also not that seriously. So I don't know why. That's been the big thing I've listened to this year as pure like audio escapism. What's the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you've consumed recently? One that I read just the other day that I really liked was in the Atlantic. It was, I'm going to get the person's name wrong, so apologies in advance, uh, Atish Tassir. They had a story titled The War on Bollywood, which is a really good look at like how the the Bollywood industry, or just Bollywood in India, it's kind of changing in the current political climate over there. And it's just, it was great, because that's a topic I know a very, like, little bit about. Like, a very vague amount of information. And I didn't realize all these changes were happening. And it's just this great little dive into it. And I love stories like that. And it's something I guess I try to do as well, where it's kind of like, this is something that's happening in a country that maybe people aren't looking at their entertainment specifically, but like greater forces are shaping it in a way. And I always love stories like that. That's the most recent one I've seen. Yeah. The war on Bollywood. Check it out. Atlantic. It's in the actual magazine uh, for the July, August issue as well. Oh, cool. I'll look forward. Uh, let's see. What is the coolest, weirdest situation or place your job has ever taken you? So can be really whatever, but kind of a, a situation where you like, I, I can't believe this is my job or my life. There is one thing that, yeah, comes instantly to mind. This was 2017, maybe, maybe 2016. I honestly also don't remember how this happened, but a music... A CEO of a music company in Thailand was visiting Japan. And for some reason, they had come across my writing. I don't know how they did that. But they invited me to have coffee with them. So I thought, sure, why not? Why not? Seems weird enough. So I go to, like, a really fancy, like, it was the equivalent of $19 for an iced coffee. <laughs> for me, I was like, oh, oh my God, I usually get the dollar coffee from the 7-Eleven. I go to this, yeah, this fancy hotel cafe in Propongi, which is a really like central, um, it's kind of known as the quote unquote Western district in Tokyo. So I go there and meet this guy and I'm just talking with him about what he does, the bands he has. It turns out he's there because uh, this really popular Thai rock band, they're called Slot Machine. They're going to play at a summer festival in Japan that year, 2016. So he's kind of just like trying to, I think, get a sense of like, oh, how do I approach the media? Blah, 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 blah. I think it's, it's something that happens a lot. You have meetings with people who just kind of want to learn um, how to interact with Western media. So that was cool. I didn't think anything of it. I thought, okay, maybe like 
this could pay off like a couple years or something down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, the next morning, he sends me a text, which is like, do you want to go to Bangkok and interview the band tonight? <laughs> which was out of nowhere. Uh, was it tonight? It might have been the uh, tomorrow. Because what happened was, and my initial feeling was like, I can't say yes to this. This doesn't make sense. <laughs> I'm not just going to take some guy's plane ticket and go to go to Thailand, a country I'd never been to for this job. So, like, at first I was already to say, like, ah, yeah, I thank you so much, but this is too much. Uh, then I talked to my editor and my wife, and they were both like, what are you talking about? Say yes. Do that. And my editor was very nice to be like, well, run a story about them. They're performing at a Japanese festival. It makes sense. So, yeah, the next day, like, early in the morning, I take a flight from uh, Namita Airport in Tokyo to Thailand to Bangkok. And I just was in Bangkok for the next 30 hours. And they were just driving me around. Um, I saw this band perform a show in a mall because I think <laughs> most, of the, most of the big like music venues and at least Bangkok, they're like in malls. And like, huh. this is what was weird about it was I was learning all these like small, like cultural things like suddenly because I only have like a day there. And, like, I'm just like, oh, malls, uh, 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 they do the, the national anthem before the show. Uh, the, the, the. It's, like, overwhelming. <laughs> I interview the band. Uh, there's just, like, backstage, just, just bizarre things happening. There's, like, people who work with, I think, Bon Jovi were back there, like, meeting the band. Huh. Yeah, none of it made sense. Um, the next day, I was given a complimentary tour of the city by one of the record labels, like, interns <laughs> so i was like driven around the city seeing tourist spots and i mean it was very nice because he was kind of telling me like oh this is a spot where um a famous american pop star uh almost got in trouble for like soliciting a prostitute i'll avoid putting names but it was a great <laughs> great educational trip and then yeah like right after they dropped me there everyone said all right see you later and i just went back and i've never you know, I talk about how, like, I want to go back to the 90s because that's my image of what entertainment writing was in the 90s. Just being, like, flown around suddenly to interview an artist somewhere. This was the only time that has ever come close to, I think, being true for me. And it is still the most bizarre thing I've done. That's cool. Yeah, that's <laughs> just thrust into a weird situation. and Not complaining. Just, yeah, just so quick is the main thing. Like, you could have at least give me a week, but it was like, oh, they're playing, like, tomorrow. Do you want to come? It's like, uh, I'm in Tokyo. You know that, right? It's like, yeah. So, yeah, that was a that was a mind melter. That's great. That's a good story. And then, I guess, the, the inverse of that, what, what's your most embarrassing journalism-related story? Embarrassing is maybe not the right word. I've had, like, traumatic journalism stories. <laughs> maybe I'll go with that. Sure. This is also ties, actually, to K-pop, which is, once again, me going out of my comfort zone. I did an interview with a group that features, like, three Japanese members. They were kind of preparing for their big Japan debut show at this point. I think this was also 2016, actually. 2016 was a weird year, in retrospect. 
And yeah, it was like a really like fluff interview, just like a really quick done over email thing. There's nothing controversial about this interview, whatever. The problem was this group, uh, the group is named Twice. Earlier that year, they had gotten into some geopolitical controversy because they had gone on a Korean music show and they... You know, they have members from different parts of Asia. So the Korean members came out waving Korean flags. The Japanese members came out waving a Japanese flag. They have a Taiwanese member. Mm. She came out waving the Taiwanese flag. And I think you couldn't guess what happened next. Right. Yeah. Yeah. China freaked out. Yeah. It was a big, like, entertainment scandal out here this member had to make this really grainy apology video that kind of looked like, uh, this was, this was when like ISIS videos were all the rage. So it kind of looked like that. Um, sorry, but like, it was really had that kind of quality and just like, she looked scared and people were like pissed off about it. Um, some people say it influenced the Taiwanese election that year. I'm blanking on who is in charge of Taiwan right now, but some people say she benefited from this because she was like, this is ridiculous. Let's not do this. People who are actually versed on the name of uh, foreign leaders instead of uh, J-pop idols. Is it? It might still be Tsai Ing-wen. It is. It's that for sure. She's definitely the one. So, like, it actually. Some people say influenced a major election. So, as you would imagine, this was widely reported at the time. So, I just mentioned it in the story as a thing that happened this year to this group and. Uh... Their their team went insane about it. And, you know, you'll get, whether it's a Japanese music company or a different music company, like, sometimes they maybe don't like something you published, classic stuff, and they kind of just, like, send you a one-off email where it's kind of like, uh, we just screwed this, whatever. It's usually very business-like. Right. This was two weeks of somebody sending us these emotionally charged emails um, where they were kind of saying we betrayed them <laughs> and like, how dare you do this? Blah, 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 blah. We demand that you remove this. And it was really using like really like forceful, angry Japanese, something I've never seen. I mean, I guess I'm lucky I've never seen this in an email before from anyone. And they were just sending it to me and my editor for two weeks straight. And it was like a real nightmare. I think it actually did push my editor to like take a break from culture editing for a while. Um, they did things like threaten, like, oh, the group's going to cancel their show because of you. Like, uh, like it was just all this weird posturing. It was embarrassing for everyone, mostly them. But yeah, it was just a weird two weeks. Like, I've never experienced anything like that since. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's beyond anything I've experienced. And like, <laughs> I mean, the most I've had to deal with is like a week of like the Brazilian defense ministry just like vigorously objecting to a story we've written. Yeah, and then yeah. uh, luckily the defense minister resigned, completely unrelated. Everybody got distracted and went away. And I was like, oh, thank God. Off the hook. K pop. K pop never forgets. So uh, yeah, that was the last time I've ever seriously tried to write about K pop. So I also, that was for me kind of just to like, okay, I think I'm good with this. I'll let other people deal with it. <laughs> so sure. Let's see. What is one thing most people don't know about you? I mean, 
anyone listening to this will know it now. People are generally shocked when they find out, like, I like sports, I guess. Um, that's one thing. I guess people just associate me as a Japanese music person. So they're kind of surprised when it's like, oh, yeah, I also really like this thing that doesn't mesh with it necessarily. What about just out of curiosity, you know, some places in, I went to a bar in Beijing, they would always show like Japanese baseball games. Uh, How do you feel about Japanese sports? Great question. I actually, in recent years, I've gotten really into Japanese baseball. It's just so fun. And like, yeah, it's actually kind of a stress relief kind of thing for me following Japanese baseball. So especially before the pandemic, I mean, and honestly, before I had a child, like I had one year where I went to a just disgusting amount of baseball games, (laughs) like, and that was kind of a real like pre fatherhood, like, like living out of fantasy, I guess. So yeah, I've really in recent years gotten into it. Um, I follow a team specifically, they're called the Saitama Seibu Lions. So they're kind of in the prefecture that's right next to Tokyo, but it's still only like 30 minutes from where I live. It's great. Love them. I do actually follow it really closely. And it's great to have something because sometimes with music, when you're writing about it and covering it, there's moments you're like, oh, it's the classic cliche of, oh, the thing I love is a job now. Um, So it's nice to have something like Japanese baseball where you're like, I never, I never want to write about this in any capacity. I just want to, like, be a guy who's following it and, like, eventually be back there, like, screaming the songs with all the other people. That's great. That's great. Uh, Yeah, I like sports a lot and somehow manage to mostly live in places where it's difficult to to see, like, (laughs) Brasilia, like, the only place without a soccer team I could have moved in Brazil. (laughs) Really? Wait, where are you in Brazil? Brasilia, it's uh, smack in the middle of the country. Oh, okay. And then, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? I was thinking this over. The kind of, you know, the, uh, the American answer. So people have something they can immediately know. Uh, I really like... Sticking with kind of, you know, culture writing, pop culture writing, music writing, um, almost famous, great movie, love that. Um, probably a lot of, probably pumped a lot of like, oh, music journalism is going to be so cool. They're going to fly me on planes places. And it only happened once to a mall. <laughs> That's a good one. And I also, uh, what is it, the September issue it was a really interesting look into just how they put together. You know, just following Anna Winter is really, like, interesting. That's a really good one. Just kind of exploring that world. I did want to throw a curveball at you. Sure. By highlighting a Japanese show about journalism that I really enjoyed. This is a comedy from... They turned it into a TV series, I want to say, last year. Japanese, it is Chanaru wa Sonomama which just means stay tuned. And if you translate that to English, mm-hmm. stay tuned. It's this like charming little six episode series set in Hokkaido, the northernmost island of Japan, kind of known for being more agricultural, more rural, colder. And it basically follows a TV station based in the biggest city, Sapporo. And it's this just this like little scrappy underdog 
TV station trying to compete with the big evil conglomerate news company <laughs> down the street. And it centers on, like, there's this fresh out of college, like, super serious journalist, and he's constantly working with this, like, goofy, like, just does everything and ends up being a weird on-air talent, like, woman who's just, like, really charming. And she represents this, um, the entertainment side of Japanese TV. It's called, like, variety shows and stuff, where it's people just, like, doing silly things in a park. And, like, it somehow manages to be this really, like, funny series while also being about journalism and how, like, it shows you, like, how to dig for stories and how to survive in this weird journalistic environment where especially there's these massive corporations bearing down on you. It's a very surprising watch because, like, I went into it thinking, oh, it's just going to be a silly, like, J-drama. But... It actually does have a, this journalistic side to it that's surprisingly captivating. And I was just like, oh, wow, I can actually relate to some of this, which is weird. I recommend it. I think it's actually on Netflix. Uh, oh, globally. really? Maybe. Huh. Maybe. And it, it, did, it has English subtitles, too. So uh, check it out if you're bored and you need uh, three hours to fill. You can go through. Stay tuned. Yeah, I'll look for it. I'd be curious to to check it out. It's very like goofy at times because it is a Japanese comedy, but it is also if you're not familiar with Japanese media, a really good overview of how like a TV station exists in this country and how it has to balance serious news with like a show where they eat different types of melon bread and tell you which is the tastiest. <laughs> it's it's a very good crash course in the media ecosystem. Yeah, I'll, I'll look for it. And then uh, the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? The boring answer would probably be something in the music industry in terms of promotion or like actually working in a more direct way to sort of highlight artists and try to build that quote-unquote bridge between Japan and the Western world, the rest of the world. That's kind of what comes immediately to mind, though I think that's definitely shaped by just having spent so much time covering the industry. A more fanciful answer <laughs> would probably be, I mean, God, honestly, I would love to, like, <laughs> to betray what I said earlier. Like, it would be fun to work for, like, a baseball team or something in some capacity. God, I don't know. Like, I don't think I have any useful skills. I probably could be the person who films the little videos they put on Twitter. And, like, <laughs> that would be enough for me. I'd be like, this is great. Just to be around it. Even though, yeah, it'd probably end up making me hating it. But it would probably, honestly, be something in sports. It would be fun to be part of, like, an organization. I guess, basically, yeah, something where you're less part of, uh, you know, especially for me as a freelancer. It's like, I'm just all here on my own wandering around. But it'd be fun to be part of a proverbial team. Yeah, that'd be great. It would also be like, the other goofy answer would be, there's definitely a class of non-Japanese person who ends up becoming a, like, TV celebrity here. I'm sure China had something similar, yeah. Yeah, there were a few people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could imagine a different world where it'd be like, it'd be fun to be one of the people who's just, like, cast as wacky English teacher too on the kids English show or it's actually funny earlier today and maybe this is why my voice is dying 
like a Japanese TV program like contacted me and they're like we want you to talk about your favorite Japanese snacks for our TV show about Japanese snacks that foreigners like <laughs> um, that's enough to build a TV show around so yeah I did that today for like an hour talking about like like senbei and like stuff just being like ah oh, yes the koala cookie is very good and the Kit Kats have many flavors but like doing it I was also thinking like this is kind of fun. I kind of like being a professional foreigner. <laughs> like there's something bizarre about it um, where it's like, it's fun to somehow become the representative for your entire country. Cause people asking you like, so do you like Americans eat this kind of candy? It's like, uh, yes, I definitely can answer this, but it was a very fun, like seeing that weird showbiz path. I was like, that could be fun. That's cool. Those are all good answers. <laughs> Basically, I'm undecided what I would do with my <laughs> fancy dream job. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, that's all the questions. I think this went great. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was it was a blast to catch up. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Patrick. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Patrick St. Michelle a freelance music and pop culture journalist based in Tokyo, Japan. I'll post links to some of the things that Patrick talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, July 18th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.